Lord, I simply pray that you would attend the preaching of your word this morning. You would encourage our hearts. For those who do not believe, you would cause them to believe. And for those who do, Lord, that you would use the preaching of the word to assist us in growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So is the ringing just me up here? Does everybody hear that ringing? It's everybody? Okay, I'm sorry about that. I'm sure we'll fix it. I'm like, is it just me? If not, you can just turn that down a little bit, Bob. It'd be fine. But All right. So, last year, I'm going to assume that everyone here, or roughly everyone here, is a Browns fan. And last year, the Browns had the ability to add to the record books something very clever. They went 0-16. Now, to do 0-16 in the NFL, I think you have to have a whole lot of things go right or go wrong. And one of those last year was they signed a receiver by the name of Kenny Britt. And I hear some chuckles already. Kenny Britt had one job to do. Kenny Britt was supposed to catch the ball. And they paid, I don't know how many millions it was to Kenny for the season. And it just seemed like any time the Browns needed a first down or just needed some kind of momentum, the ball would be thrown Kenny Britt's way and he had hands as cement. And he would just drop the ball. And we would say, ah, oh, you've just got one job to do. Just catch the ball. One job. And it seemed like he couldn't do that one job. And this morning, that same illustration, we're going to overlay onto Nicodemus. But before we get to that one point, I want to at least set the stage just a little bit on what's actually happening. I want you to see the irony of what's going on right here with Nicodemus. The first verse tells us he was a Pharisee. And he was a ruler of the Jews. I think what we do oftentimes when we hear the word Pharisee, because we've been growing up in the church and we've heard multiple messages, we immediately think, oh, those are the bad guys. Those are the goofballs. Jesus was always hammering on them. Pharisee's bad. But if we were to put ourselves back 2,000 years into the culture of Jerusalem at the time, it wouldn't have been so clear. Consider the Pharisees and who they were in Jesus' own words. First of all, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. I was talking with a friend of mine once who's Catholic, and we were discussing this passage, and he felt that that meant that Jesus had set the bar low, that it wasn't difficult at all to get to heaven because the righteous, the, the scribes and Pharisees were scoundrels. And I argued the exact opposite. No, Jesus had set the bar very high because what he said was, unless your righteousness, and that would be the external righteousness was Jesus' point, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And think about that external righteousness that they manifested. One, they weren't just tithers, they were scrupulous tithers. Jesus comments that they tithe on mint and rue, the very herbs growing, they would be careful enough to bring a tithe of just the mints and the, and the little herbs that they're growing. They were tithers and they were scrupulous about it. They were very much missionaries. Jesus says, yes, you will cross land and sea to make a single convert. Now that's a heart for missions. That they would cross land and sea for just a single convert. We know very much that they fasted often. 
oftentimes you remember they would criticize the Jesus' disciples because they weren't fasting. So they fasted. They were tithers. They were missionary-minded. They were very much dedicated to prayer. Uh, one of the extra-biblical literature of the day actually documents the Pharisees when they'd be walking down the street. If it was time to pray, they stopped dead in the tracks in the middle of the street and would pray right there. To the point where it just became commonplace for people to see this happening and was just no to go around them. It was just it was so common. There's another Pharisee praying. Just go around them. They were very much active in their prayer life. And of course, obviously they had a very high view of scripture. They're tithers, they're missionary minded, they fast often, they pray, have a high view of scripture. That was a Pharisee. There was roughly 6,000 during the time of Jesus. Nicodemus was one of those. But he's even more. It says that he was a leader of the Jews in verse 2. He was on the Sanhedrin. Now, actually, roughly any town in Israel could have had a Sanhedrin, a council, if you would. But in Jerusalem, there was the great Sanhedrin, which was the supreme council. We might liken that to our Supreme Court. They were the ones that would resolve all the manner of conflict that came up in everyday Judaism life. There were, for instance, rules on how many steps you could take on the Sabbath and how far you could actually walk without not breaking the Sabbath. So if you had questions of the law, you would take it to the Sanhedrin, for instance. If you had questions of civility, you could take it to the Sanhedrin. The Romans, although they were occupiers of Israel, had delegated much of the civil uh, law to the Sanhedrin. If you remember when Jesus was going to be tried, he went before the Sanhedrin first, uh, but they did not have capital punishment, so then they had to refer him to Pilate. But for all the matters of the law, you would go to the Sanhedrin. There were 70 members of the Sanhedrin. They all weren't Pharisees. So you have Nicodemus, who's not only a Pharisee, but he's on the Sanhedrin, set to resolve all manners of the Old Testament law. He was the final authority, if you would. Now turn with me, as we begin to set the stage for the irony here, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verse 13, or excuse me, verse 18. While you're turning to set the stage, this is after the resurrection, and we've heard of this famous passage on the road to Emmaus, where two men are walking on a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to a little town called Emmaus, and Jesus appears with them and begins to walk with them. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Then one of them, named Cleophas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had, ever, that they had even seen visions of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All right, now here comes the irony of what's happening as Nicodemus is sitting with Jesus. Here Jesus very clearly tells the two on the road to Emmaus, he's the subject of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is, a, is Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Can you imagine that Bible lesson? Because what it says here, notice it says in the last verse 27, he interpreted, uh, interpreted to them in all the scriptures. The Old Testament was the scriptures. There was no New Testament at that time. Jesus was found all over the Old Testament. It all points to him. He's the temple. Can you imagine him saying, well, you remember the temple? That's actually me. And you remember Moses? He's actually pointing to me. And you remember Abraham? That's actually me. And Adam? I'm the second Adam. Can you imagine that Bible lesson that Jesus was explaining the Old Testament to these two? All the Old Testament points to him. Now, back up just a little bit and think of what's happening as Nicodemus is sitting talking to Jesus. Here he is, an absolute authority authority on the Old Testament, the scriptures of the day. He's supposed to resolve all the conflict, to know it back and forth. He has one job to do, and Jesus, the very fulfillment of the Old Testament, is sitting right in front of him, and he doesn't see him. He knows the rules of the Old Testament, right? He doesn't know the ruler. He knows the law of God, but he's totally missing the God of the law as he sits right in front of him. That's the irony of the situation of Nicodemus. And when Jesus begins to explain what a man must do to be born again, he is totally baffled. He's like, how can these things be? He misses it all. That's the irony of it all. In 1999, two psychologists did a study which is now very famous. Uh, A little hint, you go home after the sermon and YouTube this, it's all over. What these two psychologists did is they set out to prove a point on something called inattentional blindness. Fancy word for blind spot. How about that? So what they did was they took six teenagers, and they put three of them in a white t-shirt and three of them in a black t-shirt. And they stood them in a circle, I don't know, roughly this size out here on the, on the podium, and they gave three basketballs to these teenagers, and then they brought a group, and I don't know how many they did, they did multiples. They brought groups in as observation and told the kids to begin passing the balls to each other, to start passing the hand back and forth. And then they told the kids, or excuse me, the watchers, those who are observing, I want you to count in one minute how many times you see a teenager with a white shirt catch a basketball. And so they started the clock and everybody begins to watch. But that wasn't the real test. About eight, nine, ten seconds into it, a full-sized person dressed in a gorilla suit will enter the right side of the screen, walk right through the screen, and, and go home and watch yourself. No exaggeration, stand right in the middle of the circle while these basketballs are being passed. Stand and look at the camera and do one of these numbers, turn and walk off. It's not a one or two second 
um, little zip by, see if you can see it real quick. It is broad and obvious for 10 to 12 seconds on screen and walks off. So at the end of the experiment, the two psychologists went to the observers and said, now how many times did you see a white t-shirted child catch a ball? And whatever the number was. And then they said, did you see the gorilla? And believe it or not, over all the experiments they did, almost always at least half of the observers never saw the gorilla. Now you would think, are you kidding me? But when you watch it, you probably won't see the gorilla either. Now that you know to look for it, you'll see the gorilla. But go home and Google it. It's everywhere. It's on just YouTube right away. Just in, and it's called the Invisible Gorilla. Now, just so you know, you're gonna now that you know to look for the gorilla, you'll see it. But there's multiples out there now. There's tweaks, so you might actually miss some other stuff, and you'll have to pay attention. But right in front of them, as obvious as it could be, is a full-size gorilla waving and thumping its chest and leaving in the middle of the circle where the ball's being passed. Not off to the corners, not off to the left side, but right dead center where they're looking, and they can't see it. Nicodemus was missing the gorilla. He was totally fixated on counting basketballs, that he couldn't see the gorilla, right? All that experiment does, this invisible gorilla, and what I chose Nicodemus as an illustration for, and honestly, we could have picked a lot of illustrations from Scripture. I mean, Peter, he's full of all sorts of fun stuff where he's not seeing stuff that is really obvious, is points out in our own lives, our own human frailties, that sin nature has corrupted us to the point where we simply cannot see everything even though it's right in front of us. Our vision is marred. And sometimes it's marred on the, like the really obvious things. I stand in front of you this morning with the exact same problem. I'm by no means am I at all trying to uh, assert that I have somehow found a way to see my own blind spots. But all of us in this room today have blind spots, just like Nicodemus. Now, some of these blind spots, you've experienced this, right? You're at the dining room table, hey, please pass the salt. And it's right in front of you. Can't see it. I do that all the time. And last week, or this last week, I should say, can't find a toothpaste. It's in the drawer, you know. Hey, Betty, where's the toothpaste? It's in the drawer. Uh, no, it's not. I'm looking right at the drawer. No, it's in the drawer. No, it's not. Come over here. Oh, that drawer, right? I mean, we, we experience those benign blind spots. But the blind spots I'm referring to have more of an eternal impact. They have, they have impacts on our lives. Those are blind spots that we need to fix because they're affecting us. So this morning we're going to talk about two areas in which we, can, we have blind spots. And I know, first of all, if you're thinking the way I was thinking of this, well, how am I supposed to find a blind spot? By definition, they're blind. Therefore, I can't see them. I would, I would assert to you that's not actually accurate anymore because the second Christ comes into our lives, we're no longer alone. We have God the Father to guide us. We have Jesus the Son to counsel us. We have the Holy Spirit to illuminate us. We have the Word to guide our paths. And we have the church to teach us and encourage us. So we're no longer alone. And so these blind spots are seeable. The mere fact this morning we get to talk about them will help, only because 
I told you there's a gorilla in the middle of the circle. Now you know to look for the gorilla. So this morning we're going to talk about just two areas of which we have blind spots. First is what I would say would be horizontal blind spots, or maybe earthly blind spots. And again, these are ones that will somehow have it through more than likely some form of a sinful bent. A lot of times we might be rude, we just don't see it. We might be doing something with our spouse or hurting our spouse, we just don't see it. We just don't see it. It's not because we don't, uh, not because we want to. We just literally are not seeing that gorilla right in front of us. We might have them with our, with, in relationships that work. We might have them with our spouses. We might have them with our children. They may be attitudes, but we're going to have blind spots because we're sinners and we just don't see. So how do we spot them? Well, the sermon is more this morning about just simply recognizing we have them, but it's obvious in some ways. You have to go about the spiritual disciplines. We have to be about reading our Bibles. We have to be about praying and looking for them. We have to be about worship and study and meditation. All those spiritual disciplines are at the core of how we find these blind spots. Listen to some of the verses, and there's many in Scripture that talk about this. But hear these verses now in the context of blind spots. Psalm 13, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Psalm 119, 59, when I think on my ways, hear that self-examination? I'll turn my feet to your testimonies. Lamentations 340, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. I like this one in Haggai, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You just hear that. Look, you keep doing this over and over again. Do you not see, consider your ways, this is fruitless. For the most part, though, we have to be honest and realize that if we are truly about wanting to become more like Christ, to find these blind spots, chances are we have to find them on our own. Because very very rare would somebody walk up and tell us, right? I mean, be honest. I'm not going to walk up to Joe and say, hey, Joe, I just want you to know, I find you pretty rude most of the time. We're just not going to do that because we are reminded in Scripture, hey, don't go poking a splinter out of your neighbor's eye when you got a big log in yours. I mean, we remember that. And we know, so we're nervous about pointing out. We're, you know, Proverbs tells us it's actually a virtue to overlook someone else's flaws and weaknesses. So for the most part, if you have blind spots, your neighbors and your friends are not going to tell you. But that doesn't mean you don't have them, and it doesn't mean that you still aren't walking around with some form of character issue that you want to fix or cure. Hence the reason you have to engage in the spiritual disciplines of prayer and reading and growing. But I'd also tell you that in the right circumstance, especially in relationships, the good news is there's two people involved. It's okay in the right circumstance, at the right timing, to ask, for instance, your spouse and simply say, you know what, 
if there was one thing you could change in me, what would it be? Or if there's one way in which you think I could improve, what, what might that one way be? At the right timing. I'll give you an illustration of something I did years ago that was exactly wrong, right? So it's okay to make fun of yourself. So years ago, Betty and I were dating, and we had to travel back and forth. We were in college back and forth. We had to drive. And she had a habit of when we were driving of she would just turn her back to me and look out the window and think. And just literally kind of turn her back to me. And I'd be, like, driving all alone and quiet, you know. And I would try to get her to, to turn around and engage in conversation, and it didn't go well sometimes. And she got frustrated with me. And, and I was, so I, I, you know, tried to get her to turn around. And so finally she said, finally she said, you know, it's just the way I am. Okay, this was not the right time to say what I did, but I did it anyways. I said, well, have you ever thought about changing? That was a really bad time. You know, that's really bad. That's not the time in conflict to ask, hey, where's a blind spot? Where can I improve? It's just not a good... So guys, when the wife asks you, is there anything you want, to cha- want me to change? The answer is no, right? Um, yeah. The answer is no. But that's a good time to be vulnerable with your spouse or, or even your child. You know, how many times, if you just, just think as humans, how many times have we seen someone else's conflict and we know they're engaged in some form of anger and you can from the outside look right at it and sum it up and go, oh, the problem is he's doing that, she's doing this. If they just do this and this, it'd be over. And it, it's really obvious when you're not stuck in the middle, right? And you can see it. But when you're stuck in the middle and all the emotions about it and all the history and all... All of a sudden, you're not seeing the gorilla waving at you because you're counting basketballs. And that's the exact same principle of simply asking someone at the right time, who's your very trusted advisor, hey, if there's one way I can improve, what might it be? Because ultimately, why would you want to do that? Because we are charged with growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are charged to become more Christ-like. And although we are, we can't help it. As long as we continually stay in those spiritual disciplines, the Holy Spirit will work on us and will sanctify us. But why not go looking for those blind spots? A second way, lastly before we conclude, is what I would simply obviously call if I called horizontal blind spots. Well, then the next one would be vertical blind spots. Okay, so this one now, though, we got to really pay attention. A vertical blind spot, this isn't just missing a gorilla. This is missing the ultimate gorilla because this could be a soul-condemning error. If you think that the way to be right with God is through some way in which you can affect it by working, you are missing the biggest gorilla of them all. You may have attended sermons after, or church service after church service and heard it over and over that by grace are you saved through Jesus, and it's by not by works, but by grace alone. You may have heard it over and over again, and yet somehow in your mind you continually think, if I just can accomplish this task, I'll make it to heaven. That God somehow grades on a curve. That I know he sent his son Jesus, but really there's two ways. Faith in Jesus, or I can just really live a good life. If that is what you're thinking, that is a soul-condemning error, and you are missing the ultimate gorilla. We oftentimes 
have a blind spot on how we're right with God. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's by grace you are saved. It is through Christ alone, in faith alone, by grace alone that's given to you for God's glory alone. And there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. But what about us who have put our faith in Jesus? And we are trying to grow in the grace and knowledge. We still have all sorts of blind spots. And oftentimes, I think one of the key ones here, and I could, we could go on for a long time, is our view of God. We as Christians, and we rightfully should, see Jesus as our Redeemer. We see him as merciful to us. And so, we have a tendency to formulate a vision of God that encompasses just that. And we will blind eye the other parts of God. The wrathful part of God. Jesus, it says in Revelation, that the tormentors, those who are being tormented, will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb. That doesn't sound like the Jesus that we want to talk about. I mean, a lot of times we don't want to think about the God of the Old Testament. We want to make him into a different God. The one who wipes out entire families, women and children. We don't, that, that God we just kind of want to push aside. But that's the same God. He's never changing. All that does is remind us the beauty and the graciousness and the mercy that we have. That he's our redeemer, not our judge. But we have a tendency to kind of want to mold God into the way we like and not into the, what God really is. And so that definitely will come from spiritual disciplines of continually reading and praying and studying and attending worship to get a clear picture and a clear understanding and continue to work for it. And lastly, as we conclude, I think especially the Christians, we really have a tendency to have a blind spot on how we worship God. I have a friend, um, several years ago, was looking to uh, change churches, to look for a new church. And here's the criteria he had. Talk about missing a grill on counting basketballs. If he walked in the door of the sanctuary, and if he saw drums on the sanctuary, that was it. Turn around, out we go. Like, um, what if the pastor is Alistair Begg? Would you want to stay for that one? Or what if it was John MacArthur? Or, but nope, if it was drums, I'm out. I would tell you you're counting basketballs and you're missing the gorilla because the worship service is about Jesus. It's not about the pews we sit on. I mean, when I was growing up uh, in the Baptist church, it was everybody wore a suit and tie to church. Do you guys remember that? That's just how it was, because you had to give God your best. And if you didn't wear a suit and tie to church, quite honestly, you were looked at with a little bit of a, hmm, maybe it's a visitor. Because good Christians always wear suits and ties to church. And you get caught up in counting basketballs and missing the gorilla. You're there to worship. I mean, let's be honest. Do all of us like every song that Caleb picks for music? Of course, yeah, Caleb, other than Caleb, does anybody like all the songs? <laughs> of course not. My guess is Caleb's doing his job when we're equally all unhappy, right? So as long as everybody's equally dissatisfied, then you got it right. 
It's not about the song, it's about the words of the song, because that's what you're confessing as you pray and sing. You know, we get caught up in all the tapestry of worship. We get caught up in the, the flow and the, um, the rhythm of worship, of just what pews we're sitting at, and oh my goodness, and what... No, it's about worship. It's about us coming and falling before Christ, confessing our sins, and magnifying Him. Not get caught up on all the quit counting. We need to quit counting basketballs and start and start looking for those gorillas because we will. the The invisible gorilla experiment, or um, yeah, I guess it'd be an experiment. Really, is a clever little illustration that psychologists, I'm sure, when they did it, had no idea it'd be used by by preachers around the country and everybody else for a thousand different ways are using it. But what it does is it illustrates for us our sinfulness and that we can't see things right in front of us, even though we might be looking. And because of that, there's a very good opportunity that we might be offending people, we might be creating, we might be having soul-condemning errors, we might be just fine. Remember Isaiah says, woe to them who call good evil and those who call evil good. We might be actually justifying our sins because of a blind spot. And so we have to work on those. We have to purge those out. So I'm here this morning to encourage you. Take advantage of the spiritual disciplines. Never give up studying. Never give up worshiping. Never give up reading. Never give up communicating with your spouse or those whom you love about ways you can improve. Never avoid worship. Always come because it's all those spiritual disciplines that God will use through the sanctification and the work of the Spirit in our lives to help us see those things. We don't want to be Nicodemus. where the very author and fulfillment of the, New Te- the Old Testament is sitting right in front of us and we can't see it because we're all caught up in the wrong things. That's my encouragement this morning, is keep fighting the good fight. Keep your nose to the grindstone. Keep spiritual disciplines going and look for those blind spots. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would indeed open our eyes. Cause us to examine our lives. Cause us to see those areas in which we're just blind to. Our humanity causes our eyes to focus on the absolute wrong things. But we don't have to. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Your spirit is within us and can guide us. And so we pray, ultimately, you would use the scriptures, the spirit, to conform us to your will. And that ultimately we would fulfill our calling by magnifying you and glorifying you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.